0: Let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 35. Jeremiah chapter 35. It's good to see each one of you again this evening. I um, some of you know that I've been studying with uh, Tom Holly this week, and we've been going through the book of Jeremiah. And we went over this chapter uh, 35 today. And I had um, the title listed for tonight was the Inherited Faith of Timothy. And obviously, Jeremiah 35 doesn't say anything about Timothy. But there's some thoughts here in Jeremiah chapter 35 that I'd like to look at instead. They overlap a lot with the thoughts that I would present about Timothy. Thoughts about inherited faith. And, um, and just because we were going over this today, it's very fresh in my mind. And uh, I thought there's some, some valuable things that might be even more broadly applicable than some of the things that we might note about Timothy's faith. Um, And along those lines, let me say, I know not everybody here is married, and I know not everybody here has children. And what I want to suggest to you is that if you're not married, or you don't have children, or your children are long gone, that uh, the lessons that we're talking about this week are still important for multiple reasons. Number one, you might be married one day. Number two, uh, even if your children are gone, then maybe they have children, and you're helping them raise those. Or... Or maybe you help in other ways to raise children. But let me also say this, that a lot of these things need to be understood not just by parents and not just by husbands and wives, but the people who surround those who are parents and who are husbands and wives. Because I think one of the reasons we get so off course is not just because the people in those positions are off, but everybody around them is. We've got a whole culture that really thinks wrong things about the family. And, and so we need to create an environment where we're supportive of the right things. When we start talking about disciplined children, one of the most uh, discouraging things is in, when well meaning people get in the way of godly parents raising their children as they ought to. You know, uh, all along, you, you, um, you know, when, when I grew up, you know, I, I was raised a certain way. And my parents don't get in the way of raising our children. But, you know, my mom might say something like, maybe, maybe maybe, you could let up a little bit. And I'm like, well, I probably would if you had let up a little bit. You know, I just try to remind her. This, this, this is what you did. This is what you taught me in raising children. And that's not she's not really getting on my case. But there's some older people. They just forget all about the difficulty of raising a kid. And all they can think of is... Don't be so hard on that baby, and I understand there's a need for that sometimes. People do get too hard on their children, but I just mean that environmentally we can be supportive of people who are doing the right things. We can, as single people, if you're single and you hear, um, if you're a single woman and you hear a woman complaining about her husband, you can be supportive of her in a way uh, that is either supporting her in her discontentedness or supporting her in, in speaking well of her husband as she ought. Same thing with single men and married men. So I just want to say that, that I think environmentally those things are helpful and needed. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 35, there's a story about a group of people called the Rechabites. Now I just want to go through and I'll read the first few verses and then we'll, we'll talk about what's going on, who these people are, and so forth. So Jeremiah 35, beginning verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, say, Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them. And bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Then I took uh, Jaazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, son of Habazaniah. And his brothers, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, which was above the chamber of uh, Maasiah, the son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Then I set before the men of the house of the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. But they said, We will not drink wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall not drink wine, you or your sons, forever. You shall not build a house, and you shall not sow seed, and you shall not plant a vineyard or own one, but in tents you shall dwell all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, In all that he commanded us, not to drink wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters. Nor did we build ourselves houses to dwell in, and we did not have vineyard or field or seed. We have only dwelt in tents, and we have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, Come and let us go to Jerusalem before the army of the Chaldeans and before the army of the Arameans. So we have dwelt in Jerusalem. Well, just to give you a context here as so what's going on. Jeremiah prophesies during the time, beginning during the time of Josiah. I believe it's in the 13th year of Josiah that he comes to the throne. Josiah, you might remember, was a reformer that he began to push back against many of the things that his grandfather and his father had instituted. Uh, Manasseh, his grandfather being the, the primary source of uh, of sort of some of the worst instances of idolatry. And so Josiah is pushing back and he's tearing down the high places and so forth. And Jeremiah is very supportive of that, obviously, in his preaching. But now we come to the son of Josiah, um, the second son to be on the throne, Jehoiakim. He's very wicked, very open in his wickedness. And, And during that time... Uh, Babylon has already come and taken the first wave of captives away and now they're coming again and they're laying siege about the city. Here are Rechabites, we're going to talk about who they are in just a minute they're out there, they don't live, they're sort of a weird people, they don't live in houses they continue to live in tents, they don't drink wine, Uh, they don't uh, they don't have like, um, you know, the kind of farming where they plant and reap, they're they're nomadic people in, in other words. And now they've been forced into Jerusalem because the Babylonian army's there. So God tells Jeremiah to go and make an example. Try to get them to come and see if they'll drink wine. And they say, we will not. Why won't you do that? Well, because our father Jonadab said don't do that. And we've not been doing that ever since he said that. And so God wants to make a point based on that. What's the point that he wants to make? Well... We go on and verse 12. It says, The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Go and say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction by listening to my word? declares the Lord. The words of Jonadab, the son of Recab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are observed. So they do not drink wine to this day, for they, they have obeyed their father's command. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not listened to me. Also I have sent you to all my servants the prophets, sending them again and again, saying, Turn now every man from his evil way and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to worship them. And you will dwell in the land which I have given to you and to your forefathers. But you have not inclined your ear to listen to me. Indeed, the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have observed the commandment of their father which he commanded them, but this people has not listened to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I spoke to them, but they did not listen. And I have called to them, but they did not answer. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you've obeyed the command of Jonadab your father, kept all his commands and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me always. So that's the, the point is look at these people who are listening to an instruction given by Jonadab. We're going to talk about who that is. They're still listening to it. They're still following it. And you people won't listen to God. So so they've got more respect. These people have more respect for the words of, of a single forefather of theirs than you have for God Almighty, who's done all of this for you. And so so that's the, the illustration of the Rechabites. Well, now, who are they? Well, let's start with Jonadab. Who is he? If you go back to Second Kings chapter 10, 2 Kings chapter 10, There we have uh, the story of Jehu. And I referenced that story uh, on Sunday when we were talking about Hosea. Jehu is the one who Elisha anointed to take over the throne from the house of Ahab. And one of the things he did in order to do that was was destroyed all of the house of Ahab, all of the sons of Ahab. And so he becomes king in his place. And then in addition to that, uh, Ahab went about destroying all the Baal worshipers. Really for political reasons more than religious reasons. They were loyal to the house of Ahab and so he he didn't want any political disloyalty. So he, he wipes out the Bell worshippers. And it tells us that when he's on his way to do that, he, he sends that message, all the Bell worshippers gather together. it's kind of an interesting story, you may be familiar with it. Once he gets them all in the same place, he says, Now if anybody's not he, he acts like he's got a big celebration for him. Then he says, Now if anybody's not a Bell worshipper, y'all get on out of here. And so it gives a chance for anybody to leave. And then he bars the doors and slaughters all the people there that are there to worship Baal. But as I say, when he's on his way to do that, verse 15 of 2 Kings 10, it says, Now when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab. That's Jonadab, another way of spelling the same name. He met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said, Is your heart right? As my heart is with your heart. And Jehonadab answered, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand, and he took him up into the chariot. And he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. And of course, he calls it zeal for the Lord here, and the Lord would commend him for what he does there uh, to the Baal worshipers. Jehonadab there is, is with him as he destroys the Baal worshipers. And that's that's the story. That's all we get. So who is Jehonadab? Well, he's a man that lived between 200 and 225 years before Jeremiah chapter 35. So that gives us a little bit more context. So Jeremiah uh, God tells Jeremiah, go get these people who are still following what their great 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 grandfather told them to do. This would be sort of like like if you I, I don't know. Um, the farthest back I can go with real concreteness, I know some names going on back, but there's a guy named Christopher Russell that lived in Morgan County, Alabama, and and I can still go to his gravestone and and the property that he owned back then. And he, he lived about 1790s and died in the early 1800s. And I can go find his handwritten will in the Morgan County archives. So I know a little bit about this guy, Christopher Russell. I have no idea what he would have wanted his children to do. He didn't leave any instructions. But what if he did? Well, that'd be interesting. But I wouldn't be like, man, we really need to listen to old Christopher Russell. I didn't even know who he was till a few months ago when we were doing genealogy. I just, you know, dug up his name and did a little bit of research and found out about him. But can you imagine... An ancestor of yours that lived during the revolutionary period, and you're still, like, quoting him at your family gatherings and talking about how he wanted you to live and going by that, we barely pay attention to what our dads said or our granddads, much less, you know, six generations up the line. So 200 years go by, and they're still holding on to his instruction. And Jeremiah says, look at this. Jonadab said said something way back here in Jehu's day. And look at these people still holding on to that so tightly, doing everything that he said. And God, who's repeatedly over and over told you what to do, you're ignoring it. So it makes for a pretty good illustration as far as that goes. Well... Let's dig a little bit deeper in, into who these people are. If you go back over to Second Chronicles, I say back over, you turn forward in your Bible, backwards chronologically, but forwards as far as the pages. Uh, first Chronicles, chapter 2. If you're familiar with First Chronicles, you know that the first nine chapters are nothing but names. It's just Genealogy after genealogy after genealogy. There's good, good reasons for that genealogy being there that we don't have time to go into right now. But at any rate, in the midst of all those genealogies, it tells us in verse 55, it says, the families of the scribes who lived at Jabez were the uh, Tirithites, uh, the Shimeathites, and the Succothites. Those are the Kenites who came from Hamath father of the house of Rechab. So here's Rechab's name. So the Rechabites coming from this guy. This guy, Rechab, comes comes from the Kenites. Well now, who are the Kenites? Well, let's go back a little bit further. Go back to Judges chapter 4. In the book of Judges, chapter 4, and in verse 11. There, it tells us about Eber. Judges 4, verse 11. Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. Hobab is one of the names. Jethro is another name, but Hobab here, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in uh, Zananum, which is near Kadesh. Alright? So, the Kenites are the tribe that descended from the father-in-law of Moses. Um, If you go back to Numbers chapter 10, Numbers chapter 10, we're just going back farther and farther into history, to Israel's history. Numbers chapter 10, and in verse 29... We see there in Numbers 10 and verse 29, it says, Then Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will do you good, for the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. Alright, so let's go all the way back to Egypt. All right. So they're in Egypt, and they, they leave Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 18... Um, the father-in-law of Moses comes out to meet him, bringing Moses' wife with him. They meet up. And at that point, Moses tells his father-in-law, Jethro, um, or um, Zerel, or uh, Hobab, and Hobab may also be the father in the son's name. Maybe it's a, a title. But at any rate, he says, come with us. And the father says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Uh, but the brother-in-law of Moses does continue on. And they become the Kenites. Now go back forward a little bit in history. In 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. And in verse 6. We see that they are continuing to live among the Israelites during the reign of Saul. And it says there... Saul said to the Kenites, this is when Saul was told to go and destroy the Amalekites. It says, Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. All right, well, there's there's a history lesson. Well, I I want you to see uh, a couple of things there. The Kenites are a group of people who were not Israelites but lived alongside the Israelites. And so when Jeremiah comes along and God is calling him to use the Rechabites as an example, it is a group of people who have descended specifically from a a group of the Kenites who have listened to what their great-great-great-great-grandfather said and are still living by the principles that he put in place While these people are not living by God's principles. And not only is that a group of people. It's not Israelites. They're not sons of Abraham. So you just think Jeremiah says. I want to point to a group of people who are faithful. Who can I find to illustrate faithfulness to Israel? Well not Israel. Not a tribe among them. Not a family of a tribe among them. But there is a family. And and it's this people over here. Who've kept themselves separated from the decline, the moral decline that they've seen all around them. They've kept themselves apart. And I want you to look at them and I want you to pay attention to them. I want you to think about this too that when you tie all that together and you see the sort of the depth of the lesson that Jeremiah is teaching, I think one thing this illustrates is the connectedness of the scriptures. If you just picked up the book of Jeremiah and started reading in chapter 1, first of all, there's going to be a lot of reasons you're confused if you just do that. That's like where you started. But you get to chapter 36 and you're like, who in the world are these people? Well, they are traced all through. And maybe sometimes you're reading a genealogy and go, what on earth is this information here for? Well, Because it's going to be useful later. Tuck that away. God's going to bring those people back up, and he's got more to say about those people. So a lot of times, there's little nuggets tucked away in the genealogy. Why on earth do I need to know about Moses' brother-in-law being asked to come along with him? It's just a short little snippet there in the book of Numbers, chapter 10. What's that got to do with anything? Hold the phone. It's going to be be a few hundred years from now, but I'm going to come back around to them. Let me just say that's all through the Bible. All through the Bible, you might be reading along, and you might say, what has this got to do with anything? Just keep reading. Now, You might have to read it more than once to pick up on the connection. In fact, maybe more than twice to pick up on the connection. But all along, we'll be putting those together. Now, as to parenting, let me say, the sooner you start reading those stories to your children, the sooner they'll be able to pick up on those connections. You know, there are so many connections that I'm learning. That even though I was taught the Bible from my youth, I'm, I'm 40 years old and I'm just now seeing things. If I started reading this as an adult, I don't know how old I, I probably wouldn't get to them before I died. Now, you don't have to see all this. You don't have to know all the connections, but I tell you what, there's treasure there. And so, uh, I think the sooner we start familiarizing our children with all of God's Word, the more they'll be able to see and appreciate from God's Word. And it won't just be a sort of book that they go reference when they get in trouble, but rather it'll be the the lifeblood, the very food that they live by, as Jesus would describe God's Word. Well, coming back then to Jeremiah chapter 35, I'd like to just make some observation there some observations from the Rechabites, some lessons that we can learn. We know that there's a particular lesson for the children of Israel, the the, um, men of Judah, who were supposed to be looking at that illustration. But what about us today? Well, I want to start by thinking about what Jonadab asked of his people, of his family. He asked them to abstain from some things. Abstain from wine. I don't think this is strong drink. I think this is uh, the sort of wine that would be maybe what we would call table wine. It would be a a typical drink, but not strong drink that is condemned all through Scripture. So I don't think he's saying don't go to the bar, right? I think he's saying abstain from something that is normally appropriate. It would be like the Nazarite vow, right? Right? The Nazarite vow is you're going above and beyond. You're abstaining from more than God requires you to abstain from. So he says that. Don't drink wine. Then he says don't live in houses. Well, certainly, certainly there's nothing wrong with living in houses. In fact, God intended for them to move out of the tabernacles, the tents that they were living in in the wilderness, and to go and build houses and live in houses, in fact, that were already built. So God intended for that. So there's nothing wrong with living in a house, but he says, I don't want you to live there. And then he says, don't plant anything. Well, again, God provided for them while they were through the wilderness. And even after they invaded the land, when they first got there, they just took advantage of the crops that were already there. But he says, you're going to plant and it's going to be a land of plenty. But Jonadab says, not my people. Now, why does he do that? Well, I think he is counseling a degree of separation and he's saying that we don't want to get too entangled with the world. We don't, want, we don't want our lives to be too enmeshed in what I see going on. He made this at a time when the northern kingdom was in the grips of Ahab. And then transferred over to Jehu. And neither was a good situation. And I think Jonadab looks around and says, You know what, guys? Let's just step away. And it's nothing wrong with living in a house. We're going to stay away from the city, if you will. And we're not going to set up shop. We're going to make it so that we can move away from the here when we need to. We can move away from here. We're not going to plant vineyards. Not going to. not going to set up big um, plantations or what have you. And as far as the wine, this wine is not a problem. But maybe it's one step towards what is a problem. And so we're going to just stay way back over here, away from that. Well, you might say, it's making laws stricter than what God... It it absolutely is making laws stricter than what God has made. But can I suggest to you that sometimes it is wise to separate ourselves from the world more than what God absolutely demands. I think sometimes people are trying to figure out what the minimum is. When I talk about, for instance, technology, I talk about kids having cell phones and Facebook, and somebody will say, well, I mean, do you think it's a sin for my kids to be on Facebook? Well, I certainly can't find a passage that specifically condemns that. Why don't you let your kids? I just don't think it's wise. And so I put that restriction. Now, I tell you, I communicate to my kids, I'm not telling you when I put this restriction on you, they're not on social media. And I say, uh, when I put this there, I'm using my judgment. I see damage when young children uh, especially get onto social media. They're not mature enough. I, mean, I think a lot of adults aren't mature enough. But, but they're not mature enough to handle everything that goes along with that. And so I'm stepping in and saying, not for you until you get grown enough to understand the consequences of spilling everything in your mouth onto the internet and somebody says well, you can't just make that rule I can't, I can't make that rule for you but I can for my kids and I will my kids uh, they, uh, they always I don't know go back and forth between frustration and almost entertainment at what people are surprised about what they can watch and what they can't watch your dad doesn't let you watch that. Or or maybe even sometimes they'll they'll be surprised at what they are allowed to watch because sometimes we watch something because I think they can learn something about propaganda. And so I kind of point that out to them. But I make my rules not based just strictly on what, you know, well, there's nothing definitively against this. I make my rules on what I think is going to help or harm my children. And I think being... In the know about every little TV show that's on the television. It's not helpful to my children. It's not helpful to me. And sometimes we just, we got to watch every single thing that everybody's talking about, and, and, and we are so engaged with the world. Some people just get rid of the TV altogether. Let me just say, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying the Lord requires that. But I got regard for somebody that says, you know what? Let's just go ahead and push the thing out altogether. And so there's times and places for us to back up and say, you know what, we're going to take a step back from what the, the, the bare minimum that God requires from us. Tom was telling a story today that I thought was, um, I don't know, very appropriate to this. He was telling the story of Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics, I believe, um, that, that were in Germany. Right before the breakout of World War II. and, and of course Jesse Owens um, coming representing America at a time and in a place when um, you know, white supremacy, uh, not just not just like an illusion to white supremacy, people thought it was white supremacy, open and stated, and so Hitler was very keen on making sure that that uh, that his uh, his sort of great white hopes could. Uh, embarrass anybody from countries that were not represented by white people. So there's Jesse Owens. He comes to this event, and he goes He goes for the long jump, and then the first attempt, you know, you get three attempts. The first attempt, uh, they disqualified him because they said he stepped on the line. So, Alright, he's going to be a little bit more careful the second time. And incidentally, that, that was a world-breaking distance. Well, he, he comes through on the second time, they said disqualified again, he stepped on the line. So he took a piece of chalk, and he backed up about 10 inches and drew a line behind the official line. And then he jumped from there. And then they couldn't disqualify. And he still broke the world record. And so what, what that shows is you, you think, well, you're holding yourself back. No, I'm, I'm just making sure. And I think sometimes we think if we were to back up Well, we're going to hinder ourselves. No, you can still accomplish great things by being extra careful. And so don't be afraid of setting some rules, especially for your own household. Now, do be very careful about setting them for everybody else. But when it's for your house, absolutely. And particularly for yourself. Start here. I'm going to set rules. And I'm not going to tell you what the rules should be. I'm not going to tell you, yes, video games or no video games, how much time limits and what things you should allow your children to play, but you need to make some kind of rule. You say, well, God doesn't say anything about video games. but He says something about where our attention ought to be. And so make some sort of rule that recognizes that, at the very least, God doesn't want your child to be consumed by that. You say, well, that feels kind of arbitrary. It's going to be it's going to be and maybe you'll even have to make some adjustments along the way we've had to do that you know we make a rule and then we go you know what i think we'd like to, to tighten up on that one or maybe you know i think maybe we ought to loosen up on that one but we're making a rule i do think that fathers and mothers need to make a case for the rules if you look back there in chapter 35 as jonadab makes those rules um he says he, he commanded us these things. You should not drink wine, that's verse 6. Um, you and your sons forever should not build a house nor sow seed, plant vineyards, etc. In tents you shall dwell. He says that, at the end of verse 7, that you may live many more days in the land where you sojourn. I'm trying to prolong life here. I'm trying to make you have. A longer and happier life and let me suggest that when i make rules i try to communicate to my children always that this rule is for your good because sometimes your kids think that you know that what's going on is that your your greatest desire is to see them disappointed like like kids come along and they think mom and dad just hate to see us having fun Nothing further could, nothing could be further from the truth. I, I delight like to see my children delight, but I want that delight to be deep and lasting, and so it means a lot of restrictions. My daughters, uh, we'll talk about dating tomorrow night, and and we have a, uh, you know, we've we've had good times and bad times. We go through our rules on dating. Overall, I think they respect those rules, and and we we have good discussions about those, but. There are times where the pushback has been intense and it's, you know, the, the thought process is you just, you just don't like boys. And, and I'm like, well, maybe it's not entirely wrong, but, but truly that's not it. I want to protect you from disasters that I have seen over and over and over. And so, yes, I'm going to put some rules in place. And the rules that are better judged by a 40-year-old man than a 16-year-old girl. And so you're going to have to trust me on that. We'll get to that in just a moment. But I'm putting those things in place. And I make the case. And I say, I I try to help them understand. To see what the possible dangers might be if we don't stick by those rules. I want to convince them of the value of the rules that I'm making. And if you can do that, what you're really trying to do is make the case. Because one day, they'll be adults. And they're not your, your... household anymore and they don't have to follow your rules anymore, but you want to set them so firmly in place with the with the knowing the value of those rules that when they leave the house they still got something to hang on to. And maybe maybe they'll just pass those along to their kids. Who maybe will pass those along to their kids. And maybe six generations from now, people may not remember your name, but they could be following the very rules that you set in place because they're good rules and they're helpful, and they accomplish the thing that you're setting up to do. Jonadab accomplished something here. He produced a righteous people in the midst of total wickedness who remained unscathed by all of that. What a testament. It worked, we might say. I think another thing we can learn from the Rechabites is that we shouldn't just quickly... um, walk away from traditions that are set in place by our faithful predecessors. Boy, it's become so popular. I mean, it is in every generation, but it seems really intense these days to roll your eyes at the older generation. My kids, you know, they kind of have picked up the, the language, not in all the same hateful ways, but they do like to say, "okay, boomer, around the house when, you know, like they'll quote, Something uh, from a uh, maybe a modern pop song, and I say, "What is that?" And they're okay, boomer. You know, you're so out of touch, right? The world's saying that about a lot more important things about being out of touch of pop music. You know, we got an older generation that's saying, "Hey, do you not understand where these principles, where this chaos, where anarchy leads to?" And we got a whole generation saying, okay, boomer. But we got, I'm talking about a generation who's gone to war with the consequences of that kind of behavior. And they're like, whatever. You're just, you're just an old fogey. It's gotten no. Here are people with knowledge and wisdom. I'm not saying that the whole generation has knowledge and wisdom, and we've got to listen to everything. No, it's got to be tested by God's word to understand that. But sometimes we think, you know. We just pass it on as if there's no value to that. And I hear people talk about an older generation, and I think, you ought to be so much more careful about that. Those are knowledgeable people. And especially within the church, among God's people, to be dismissive of things that people have thought and taught and and lived by in, in preceding years. Don't just throw it in the trash can. Evaluate that. It may still have some value. I understand that we do not just hold on traditions because they're traditions, but neither do we just throw them away because they're traditions. I I like the beginning of Fiddler on the Roof. I don't know if you're familiar with that musical, but one of the songs in there is Traditions. And I think even there, it's sort of making fun of traditions. But some of the languages that traditions are what keep us alive. Right? That we, we learn from the mistakes of the past. We set in place rules and, and forms of behavior. And I tell you what, we live in a world that has thrown out so many unwritten rules. And then they crying out about the consequences. I think about the, the Me Too movement. That was, and that seems like ages ago now. But all of these complaints coming out about sexual harassment. And these complaints coming from the same people who championed throwing out all of the sexual rules that we used to keep in a workplace that would maintain and and make sure those sorts of things didn't happen. And they cheered on as we cast it by the wayside and then, wait, 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 wait. There's nobody following rules anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You threw them all out. They were just traditions, right? There were traditions that were keeping people safe. The tradition that a man would take a role of protectiveness towards a woman as opposed to a predator towards a woman. Oh, that's chauvinist. Okay. And so you've taught men to not have that protective attitude. And then you cry out at the consequences. Traditions. We need to evaluate and hang on to traditions that are valuable. We need to build trust with uh, a younger generation, though, so that as much as possible, we build trust so that they are willing to listen. I don't teach my children about the rules, and I've talked about this already from explaining, but I try to build trust with them. I try to hear their concerns and, and talk um, you know, respond to their concerns so that all along they trust, they believe in my judgment and, and that they can see that I'm trying to base those things on concerns based on God's word. I think we need to be careful uh, about making fun of people who faithfully live by a standard that is stricter than God's standard. It is a particularly strong rebuke when people who are doing that uh, are more faithful than the people who are getting closer to the line or have gone over the line. Here are people in in Judah who would look at these strange Rechabites and and, would look at how strict they're living. Well, that's true. They're living by a stricter standard than what God says. And here are people who think God's standard is too strict. So we look around maybe at, at people who are extreme in their modesty. Maybe they maybe they would wear uh, skirts down to their ankles at all times. The men would never wear anything shorter than pants. And we just say, oh, this is so peculiar. It, while the person saying that's walking around fully exposed well it may be it may be more than God requires but at least it's not less than God requires if you give me one or the other I'll take the more than God requires and I think we need to be careful of making fun of people who make choices that do certainly lead to, to more focus on God when somebody is not attuned to to cultural references because they just don't watch TV anymore when I when I reference have you seen this movie and somebody says no I've never seen that one and I find out that the sort of person who just hadn't seen much of anything maybe they just read books and I'm like man good for you like I almost wish I didn't get all the cultural references and and so I don't I don't make fun of that I, I aspire to have more focus on better things than what the world has to offer. Homeschool kids get made fun of because they don't understand all the jokes. You got, you got, the, even even in the world, you know, when you when you look over, you look over at people who are trying to live a simpler life. Not because they believe it's it's righteous in and of itself. It's just they're trying to get a little bit of distance from the world, and more power to them. Maybe there's some drawbacks to that. I think there can be. But I won't make fun of them for trying to get closer to God in whatever way they can, provided that doesn't mean they're loosening the standards. I also think that when we respect the source, that when we appreciate traditions, there are some things that will never lose the relevance. I know we think that about God's Word in general. But we can also think that about certain traditions certain ways that we go about doing things. Um, some, some people might walk in to an assembly like this and say, you know, you're just doing things like uh, like this because Alexander Campbell kind of started this pattern. Well, there may be things that we're doing that um, that are very similar to Alexander Campbell. And there may be things that, that we could trace more closely to that than the New Testament. And what I mean by that is maybe there's some specifics about what we do, and we, we can't find the, those details in the scriptures. We're finding specific ways to meet the pattern of what they did. But maybe we don't know, like assembly times, how long we assemble, all those sorts of things. We set those traditions, and maybe they go for generations. And maybe they go for generations because they work for generations. And why would we just throw that out if it's still working and it's still relevant? We will always need the preaching of God's Word. Somebody says, oh, the get up and preach a sermon models, that's done. No, that will never be done. The preaching of God's Word will always be necessary. And in whatever form we do that, we don't need to lose that tradition Because it's a tradition that's based on God's word. And particularly those traditions are the ones that we need never throw out. I would make this observation as well then. There's a connection here. Jeremiah commends the Rechabites. And he commends them by the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, he says in verse 18, because you've obeyed the command of Jonadab your father. And he says, the reward is that Jonadab, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me always. God rewards their obedience. We're talking a lot about, you know, establishing rules to help us be devoted to God in our household, passing those on to generation after generation. But ultimately what we're trying to do is establish a pattern that carries over to God. I want my children to learn by by respecting my authority and and being obedient to me how to be obedient to God. Um, If they can learn the value and can learn to cherish being obedient to an imperfect father like me, then how much easier will it be for them to cherish being obedient to the Father above? If they can learn not just that, but learn to appreciate authority even outside of mine, when, when they have teachers with whom there's a disagreement, I want to teach them how to respect authority even when they have a disagreement. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, if, if there was a problem at school, I was guilty till proven innocent. Now you may not appreciate that, but I do. I appreciate it from the standpoint of, of my parents wanted to know, did you maintain a respectful attitude? doesn't matter how silly the thing is that the teacher asked you to do. Did you maintain a respect in that classroom? I remember one time my brother came home and, and he had been disrespectful to his teacher and it was particularly disrespectful about him wasting some paper and and she was kind of a hippie and she literally made him go outside and hug a tree now my brother i mean he's the last one in our family who would have done this and he refused now my mom certainly didn't believe that he uh needed to morally hug the tree but she believed that the teacher was in charge in that classroom She's the authority. And what is wrong with you? Go hug the tree and sit back down and mind your manners. You don't have to absorb the lesson of loving the tree, but you do have to mind your teacher. And what she was teaching him is things that he needed to learn later in life. Maybe you come in contact with other authority figures and if you disobey them because you think their commands are ridiculous, maybe they can do you a lot more harm than that teacher could. Listen to what they're telling you. Do what they're saying. They're the ones in charge. Maybe they're being ridiculous. Maybe they're asking things that they shouldn't ask. But if you can learn to obey imperfect authority figures here, man, have I got good news for you. There's a perfect authority figure. And it'll be pleasant, so much more pleasant to obey him. But instead, we, re- we raise little rebels. And we encourage the rebellion at every turn, and then we wonder why that rebellion carries over finally to God. Well, what about you? What are you doing to keep yourself separated from the world? What about your family? You're leading your family in a way with thoughtfulness that that cares not just about you know meeting the bare minimum, but like like Jonadab looks around and says, where do we need to step back even a little bit further? And then do you communicate that with authority? Do you communicate that with with good reasons and build trust so that they might listen to you? And are you given the word of God finally, the same respect that is given to the instructions of men, which is the, the ultimate point to be made here? Have you transferred that obedience finally to Him? You know, I, I talk about <clears throat> your parents raising their children with that respect and hopefully that eventually transfers over to God. When that doesn't work, sometimes it can work the other way. Maybe your respect for authority begins with God and then it comes back the other way. Maybe you've grown up a rebel and so now you've got to learn to submit. Well, you can learn to submit to the perfect authority and then he's there to help you submit to less perfect authorities. Because we trust in him, it makes it easier going the other way as well. If we can help you in any way submit to that authority this evening, won't you come forward while we stand and while we sing?